Welcome back to another episode of the Fantasy Baseball Buds Podcast. I'm your host, Richie. Joining me as always is Matt. We got a lot to talk about today. There's been some trades, there's been some signings. Ultimately affects what we think are going to be um, forecasting where other free agents will sign and go. And then we're going to do a little fun activity for you guys, and we're going to forecast what our top 10 prospects are going to look like after the early call-ups that we expect to happen, or some prospects that might make the opening day rotation and roster. But first, let's bring in Matt. Matt, how are you doing? What is going on, everybody? I'm just currently uh, attempting to uproot this team I've taken over in a categories league. It was an orphan team. Uh, kind of like what I have. I have some really nice pieces, you know, Bo Bichette. Brian Bello, uh, you know, our guy, George Kirby, big time fan, uh, you more than me to start. And now I've kind of come around. Uh, but the team itself has some weaknesses. My outfield is pretty horrendous. I've got uh, Brian De La Cruz, Lourdes Gurriel, Lars Nudbar, Alec Thomas, Brendan Marsh, Dalton Varsho. Not good. It's not good at all. Sounds like you could use some Victor Scott in your life. Yeah. So uh, targeting Victor Scott, CJ Abrams, bring some speed in. And I think that's kind of been the trend, at least for me this offseason, in drafts and kind of in trade targets, has been the speed, especially C.J. Abrams. I, I don't know necessarily what it is, but um, this could be a fault. We'll see in a couple of years. I have fallen fully in love with the profile, and I've been targeting. I've been drafting. I've been trying to trade for. Victor Scott's a guy you and I absolutely love. I think we've talked about him two or three weeks in a row now. You know, We don't need to kill that dead horse. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's hard. Taking over an orphan team is is you know usually – going to be less assets than desirable and uh, this time I was able to take over a team like we just talked about also with the 1-3 in the uh, FYPD so very excited about that um, also just trying to you know mount a television put up a dresser go back to work tomorrow record twice tonight you're a busy man uh, we're you adults are a busy man um, it's it's yeah. fun yeah um, before we get into the news I do want to highlight um, some other things that have been going on we've been a little bit more active on Twitter you can follow me at BrewersFan91 you can follow Matt at Matthew underscore E underscore Morris um, put on a little bit more content and um, real life analysis if you're getting a little more eager instead of listening to us once a week or bi-weekly as far as drafting goes after the two dynasty leagues that I got in with you, I got the itch to keep it going. So I actually joined one of the mock drafts um, for the dynasty dugout with Chris Clegg and Eric Cross. So that's getting underway. I just started it off with Kyle Tucker, Jackson Churio, Pete Alonzo, and Nico Horner with my first four rounds. So I got to keep the good times rolling and not have the burden of keeping up with too many dynasty leagues like you have. But having said that, Let's get to the news that everybody's been talking about. Shohei Otani signs a 10-year, $700 million contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers, but I don't even think that's the headline here. The headline is $68 million yearly will be deferred, so he's only making $2 million per year from the Dodgers. Pretty much gives them so much flexibility to just go out and keep on signing as if they didn't even sign Otani. So this shows me he really wants to win he doesn't care about the money and he's going to make up the money with endorsements alone so i don't think he's worried about that at all what are what is your initial thoughts do you think they go out and get yamamoto now with this extra money that they have yeah well and i had a conversation with you about this today this was something that i saw kicking around a few of the uh group chats that i'm in with these dynasty leagues 
at least one member per league was really upset with this move. Uh, you know, they thought it really affected baseball. They thought it ruined the product. You know, Durant's name got thrown out there a lot for you that, uh, those of you that like the NBA, you know, there's a lot of feelings towards when Durant went to Golden State, uh, Golden State to play with the Warriors and like just a lot of animosity towards Otani deferring the money. And my outlook on it was very different. It was, he is taking a very selfless act by signing this contract and deferring the money. Obviously it's $700 million, boo-hoo, how selfless can it be? But still that money at $700 million kicked on the road with inflation will be a different dollar amount and value at the time of than when it was signed. So there's that, it's a smaller deal per se, um, you know, minusculely, and it's when you were talking 700 million, but he's kicking it down the road so they can compete now. And I think that's great for Major League Baseball because it showcases a different level of intent from a player. You know, you look at Judge, you look at A-Rod's contract back in the day, you look at Bryce Harper's contract, he has some deferrals as well. Um, few players kick deferrals past the 5 to $10 million mark. And I know Strasburg's deferrals were pretty heavy. He was one of the first of uh, the modern players to do this. And my take just ultimately was this isn't Otani's fault. This is the Dodgers' fault. This is Major League Baseball's fault for not having a salary floor. You have, I mean, we have to look at the current salary um, kind of breakdowns and, and how many teams are under $100 million alone. I know there's at least nine from when they brought up the Otani news. I think it was nine teams that were paying their total roster less than that $70 million annual value for Otani, and that was disgusting. But I think it's a problem across baseball that there isn't a salary floor, that you are allowing these teams to make revenue off TV contracts, make a profit right out of the gate because they're keeping their their uh, their salaries under 60, 70 million. They're already pocketing that money on not even including the gate sales, the merchandise sales, anything else that they're profiting from their revenue stream. If you had teams with a minimum salary floor, you would have more of a competitive league. If you look at the NFL, I think the big takeaway this season is that, well, shoot, there's a lot of disparity. Like, you know, everybody's just kind of okay. And then you have a few teams that are really, really, really good, but have done great roster construction. And it's like, well, it will balance out in the next couple of years. Once the Eagles and the 49ers have to figure out their salary cap, it, there is no choice. They've also made great trades. So I think this takeaway is really for me, create a salary floor, force these small market teams like Milwaukee, Kansas City, Oakland currently will be Vegas, make them spend money and you will see more of a diversified league. And, you know, this Otani deal wouldn't look as crazy if you have teams paying players what they actually deserve, as opposed to just the 15 superstars making 30 plus million dollars a year. Um, so but, I looked it up. What I looked it up. There are, there are six teams in 2024 that will have total payrolls under 70 million, which is what? Otani yeah. signed for or what he's going to be making yearly if we're not including the deferral. So at one, you have the Oakland Athletics at 39 mil. <laughs> Ball, That's Baltimore, or Baltimore Orioles at 42, which is pretty good considering how good they are. Pittsburgh Pirates at 48. Cincinnati Reds at 59. Milwaukee Brewers at 61. Miami Marlins at 65. And those are the six, but there's a seventh one. Cleveland Guardians are at 71 and a half. So they're just over it. But after that, it's like, okay, after 71, then there's a little uptick. Kansas City Royals are at 88. But 
I think it was today or yesterday, they just made some signings. They got Seth Lugo for $45 million over three years. They also signed, I'm blanking now, another pitcher for another five or ten mil. Um, so they're starting to come to my mind either right now. Uh, I'm blanking. We'll, f- we'll look it up later. But regardless, there are some bottom feeder teams that have way below the league average. So having a floor wouldn't be terrible. I would agree with you. Let's move on now to the second biggest news, which is Juan Soto traded to the New York Yankees for Drew Thorpe, Michael King, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez, and Kyle Higashioki. uh, The Yankees also got Trent Grisham in the deal as well. A lot of moving pieces here. I think Thorpe and King are the biggest ones. They were the biggest rumored. I think both of them instantly go right into the San Diego Padres rotation. They were very thin after you Darvish and Joe Musgrove. So much needed help there. A little on the fence on if Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez get uh, starts or if they're going to be long relief, do they go to the, the minors? But what's your initial take on this whole trade in general? And what are your thoughts on Juan Soto? Does he rise up the boards for you? What's, what's your general thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, this is, um, this is so deep. I'm going to try to and kind of minimize it as much as possible because, you know, um, there's a lot to it. And for those of you interested, kind of I'll talk about it today. Um, wrote an article for our friends at Scout the Stat Line. Go check it out. And first takeaway is Michael King. You know, I looked into him as I was kind of writing this article because the premise was I wanted to really highlight what the Padres got back. We all love Juan Soto, right? I think at this point, if you're listening to our show, You've already done your own research and seen the impact that we expect from him at Yankee Stadium. Now, 27 home runs, I think, was the number um, from uh, a resource that we used that would 27 home runs in Yankee Stadium if Soto played there last year. I don't believe that. I think it's garbage. I understand where the data is coming from. I do have a little bit of concern that he may be too pull happy and the average might be affected for the first month. But I think he'll figure it out. And I think we'll see that 1,000 OPS that he had on the road last year right back where he was solidifying him as either the best hitter in the league or one of the best hitters. Um, so Juan Soto is great. That's a fantastic haul. I think if he's available, you trade what you need, you get him. But we have to look at this from the Padres' perspective because they did give up a lot to get him, right? They gave up Mackenzie Gore, who's looking really nice now. They gave up C.J. Abrams, who we just spoke on, how much I'm enjoying getting shares of him this offseason and the emergence of that once young prospect. James Wood has his question marks with strikeout rate, but we've seen the immense potential there. Um, you talk about Susana, who could be a starter or could be a great closer. And then if Robert Hassel can turn things around, we're talking about one of the greatest trade packages possibly of all time. And that was a lot. But I think when you get back Drew Thorpe, who we have covered for the last year, you know, and you know, I wrote this in the article, you and I have said it to each other. We were just assuming at some point he was going to fall off the cliff, and he never did. That was what amazed me the most. Every time we'd check in on him and Chase Hampton, it was crazy because Thorpe eventually passed Hampton, and to start the year, we were really excited about what Hampton was doing, um, or Thorpe passed Hampton. So I was really excited that they were able to get Drew Thorpe because I think in that ballpark, you're talking about a pitcher that's really going to elevate his numbers from where he had been if he was in Yankee Stadium. He's also going to be given the guaranteed opportunity. Also, the Yankees and their track record for developing starting pitchers of high level at the major leagues is not there. For whatever reason, these high-end starting pitching prospects just never come about for the Yankees. And 
I like the train, the transition for Thorpe. But again, after doing all the research, I stopped at Michael King. Once I looked into his numbers in the minor leagues, um, coming over from Miami to New York for Caleb Smith and Garrett Cooper, I was kind of blown away. Uh, and if you're interested in those numbers, go look at his 2019 season, I think it was, maybe the 2018 season for New York. Uh, coming off a really nice season with Miami, but low strikeout rates, as soon as he got to the New York system, the strikeouts shot up. Under two ERA, low walk rates. I mean, very similar to what Drew, Drew Thorpe did this year. It was eerie. He actually did better than Thorpe at uh, high A, double A, triple A. So again, similar progression to Thorpe. Thorpe hasn't made triple A yet. Um, so Michael King for me is really the cherry on top for this. The question mark is health. There's an uptick in velocity for Michael King over the last couple of years. They've gotten him to throw harder. They've changed his slider to a sweeper. Those two things have really elevated his game as well as a starter. I think really allowing him to have major league production. That question though, back to injury was the stress fracture in the elbow. And he had a couple of years where he was on and off with the elbow. And then the stress fracture happened at the major league level. So we have a history of multi-year issues with the elbow. And now that we're giving him a starter's workload, after not being a starter for almost four years, my question is, can he hold up health? And if he can, I think they've acquired a great number two, great number three in this rotation to pair with Musgrove and Darvish, which gives them a very formidable rotation on top of having Fernando Tatis, Manny Machado. Um, So this could be huge for San Diego, but... Even if the one of Thorpe or King pans out to be a really nice starter for a three to five year window, I think this is still a decent return, seeing as they did make the playoffs with Juan Soto two years ago. They got some value from that. They made their shot. It didn't work out. They weren't going to resign him. To be able to get Thorpe and King was a home run. And then you talk about adding organizational depth with um, with Randy and and Johnny. I think both of those players are probably going to be swing fives, possibly long relievers, if not a, a six guy that they can lean on down the stretch at periods of times or if injuries come up but the biggest piece too for me is the Yankees lose a lot of depth with this on top of losing a lot of depth with the rule five picks that were just taken they had I think second most players purged from their organization in the rule five draft a couple of those being starters that I really liked that were depth pieces one going to Kansas City um so my concern for the Yankees is just you've lost organizational depth. You get one of the best players in the game. That's a win. You still have Chase Hampton, so that's also a win. You still have at least one pitching prospect coming down the pipes that you can really lean on. Have a couple of younger pitching prospects in that organization. The Yankees could do this. The Padres needed to do this, and I really like what they got back. Yeah, as a Michael King owner, I hope he can hold up. That is for sure. Maybe I'll uh, move him after he has a quick start. Well, we'll and see. That, that's the last thing I think, and this is a takeaway we'll probably have for another episode, but I was thinking back on all the players I add-dropped this season in our home league, and it made me sick to my stomach. King was one of them. You know, the, the list you goes, had King? I had okay. King first. I had King about two weeks before he started because I had caught an article from uh, one of the New York publications that he was asking to start. And I was like, oh, good. like this is cool. Like Look at his bullpen numbers. They've been good. This would be interesting. And so I added him. He started, I think, the first game, and it was an okay start, but it wasn't fantastic. And I was like, ah, whatever, like, bye. Yeah. And on. a month later, I'll I'm trade like, you for Junior Caminero. Oh, send it over. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, one King's thing great. before before we move on to the next headlines, I do like Will Warren um, on top of Chase Hampton that they have in the Yankees system. I also like Clayton Beater as 
uh, a number five for them. But the key now, after they get one Soto, is they have to go and get Yamamoto. It's going to be them jockeying for him over the Dodgers. And with the Dodgers having Hotani, Freeman, and Mookie Betts, it's going to be hard to persuade him one way or the other. I think it is going to come down to one of those two. So that is going to be the next domino that falls in free agency, I believe. Yeah, no, I, move. I I agree. This this is like Yamamoto probably makes an extra fifty million dollars off Otani signing in LA, because I'm guessing oh, just that, because of the availability of him possibly going. Yeah, to LA. right. Like you you know LA can now spend two fifty three hundred million on Yamamoto, and they need him. They probably need him more than the Yankees need him because they do not have a number one right now in LA. But the Yankees need to bring him in to solidify this this favorite. World Series contention, right? Like you get Yamamoto, pair him with Cole and Soto and Judge. Damn, I uh, just that's some that's some f- super stardom. Um, but if, same thing would be said in L.A. If the Yankees do not get Yamamoto, I think the first thing they do is go and get Cody Bellinger then and Blake Snell. Okay. Yeah, and then think, and then yeah. you and then you see uh, Verdugo and Grisham traded for probably scraps. Um, you know, like we'll see. It'll be crazy. Yeah, it'll be crazy. All right, enough with the oldies. Let's get into some young guns that are going to be making some opening day rosters. First one, Jackson Cheerio, my boy. I don't know if he's your boy, but he is a Brewer. He inked a eight-year contract for eighty-two million. There is also a two-year club option at the end, so it could get up to ten years. Um, eighty-two million, all guaranteed for Jackson Cheerio. It's the Biggest deal for a player that has not reached the majors. I think this all but guarantees that he makes the majors. I'm excited. I think there's going to be some growing pains. I think there's a good chance he starts out hot first two weeks, three weeks. Then people start adjusting, figuring out some of his holes, and then he's going to have to adjust. And that's, I talk about it all the time. That's where I'm curious. Do they adjust to what the pitchers adjust to him? Uh, but all in all, I think he's the front runner to win NL Rookie of the Year. The only other player I could see contending with him is if the Pittsburgh Pirates bring up Paul Skeens for opening day, which I'm not sure if they're really going to do, or we talked about it off the air, do the Nationals bring up Dylan Cruz and let him go crazy? I don't think they do. I think they hold him and have his rookie year start next year. But I think Jackson Churio's the front runner for NL rookie of the year. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think he has to be at this point. Very similar to where Corbin Carroll's hype train was hitting last spring training. You know, peak spring spring training. Um, I think at this point you're looking at it like it was two man race last year, and it you know for the NL it it was always Corbin Carroll until the shoulder scare happened, and then people were worried if someone else could you know nudge through. But I think it's Churio's to lose the. I think you brought up the only other name, um, and it's not Skeens. I think it's Cruz. You know, we talked about this today kind of at length, so I won't give into those details, but we hypothesized maybe he's ready by June. Maybe he comes out. Spring training is nice, does absolute domination like Langford did. Uh, he's maybe just, you know, a step behind Langford, and well, the Nationals are like, how can we not bring him up? Well, they sacrificed the fact of 2025, him possibly being the NL favorite for Rookie of the Year and not getting that draft pick compensation. So why would they bring him up? But I don't think we talked about the aspect that if they invite him to spring training, which they will, and he absolutely dominates, 
how are they going to send him down knowing that Major League Baseball fans are going to be clamoring for him to be brought up? And I think back to when we've seen a few names in the past dominate in spring. Um, this is Christian Encarnacio Strong just last year, right? I think to Chris Bryant, when Chris Bryant came out and looked like the MVP that he would eventually be in spring training. The Cubs were like, well, you're going back down. You got to work on defense, which was all bullshit. Uh, it was all the collective bargaining system and how to save money with him. And then they brought him up. So I think it's it's going to be really interesting to see what Cruz does in spring. I think best case scenario, he comes in, has a nice spring, nothing crazy, looks like a professional player, but you know, just not ready to excel yet. Then they can send him down to double or triple, give him a full season, let him really get his groove, and in 2025, bring him up. It'll be interesting. He's the only name that I think to watch out for because, again, four months ago, five months ago, we had him ahead of Langford, and now we don't. There hasn't been enough of a drop-off for me to believe that he still isn't ahead of Langford if he can find his stride. Now, we've got to see how that plays out. And I think Skeens is going to have some major growing pains at the major league level this year, and that's okay. He's a pitcher. Yeah, let's move on to the next um, two prospects, um, arguably one and two, Jackson Holiday and Junior Caminero. Both are primed to also make the opening day roster. They don't have the contract that Jackson Churio does, but it's going to be a, a nice race between those two for who's going to win AL Rookie of the Year. My bet is on Junior Caminero, but I could see Jackson Holiday doing some defensive things um, running a little bit more, providing with stolen bases. But honestly, I'm going to just go out and say, I think Caminero hits 35 to 40 home runs this year and really blows it out of the park. Something similar to what Pete Alonzo did when he was coming up. I don't think, I think people are underestimating the type of power this kid has. And he's only like, what, 20 years old, Matt? So I like what I see from them. I am constantly targeting them earlier than other people are but I've always been higher on taking prospects early and just betting on the ceiling outcome rather than the floor outcome. You know, you in years in our home league have been able to be ahead of me in most prospects. And, uh, you know, I will, I will remember junior Caminero as, as my, I had him on my watch list, you know, as my, my rebuttal. Um, and I, I will always remember like the start of this season, like sending you videos and us talking about Caminero, like up oh, another home run, like another home run. It was like, this kid is, this kid is going to be top 10 end of season if he continues this. And honestly, I had said the same thing about Jan Kiel. Maybe not top 10, but I was like, this kid's the guy. And Jan Kiel just, it didn't work out now, at least yet. Now the difference, and this is kind of to, to your equate of power, watching his home runs, the majority that I saw this year were opposite field absolute blasts. His approach to go to the opposite field and to go with tremendous power is what really impressed me. Because then you would see one where he pulls a ball and you're just like, where did it even land? I I, I can't even, it's over the wall somewhere, but like maybe 450. And you're like, okay, so his pull power is tremendous as well. Uh, it's the approach that I'm really excited about with Junior. And I agree with you. I think I think a bad season for him this year is probably 250 with 25 home runs. I just I, I don't see anything outside of the realm of one of the a top 10 at the position on a bad year. And with Jackson Holiday, I think it's a little different. I think he's going to really struggle with major league velocity to start. Not that he's going to be a bad player, just not the superstar everyone is expecting. And I think there's going to be some growing pains, as you had talked about with Churio. 
um, because there isn't as much natural, raw, loud talent there. The tools aren't as loud as Caminero's. But I do think as Holiday develops into his body at the major league level and gets comfortable, I think we see a July or August explosion. I think out of absolutely nowhere, the kid starts hitting 300, and we see one to three to maybe five absolute mammoth home runs where we start to realize, oh, he's, he's found his power. And I think it's only a matter of time. I think the fact Holiday is as young as he is, his body is still developing, could lead us to a body similar to his father's eventually, maybe a little more athletic because he isn't in the infield. But I think Holiday, and I'm going to probably be on my own with this, I think Holiday will have a 35 uh, to 40 home run season in his career. I think this kid will regularly hit 25 to 30 home runs after the age of, say, 24. Um, and I think Holiday is absolutely deserving of the number one spot but he's in my opinion just not as major league ready as Caminero yeah um that'll definitely be interesting I I don't think Jackson can hit for the uh, that much power but then saw a video of Instagram of Matt Holiday Jackson mm -hmm. Holiday and Ethan Holiday I think we might have talked about it last podcast of them all hitting home runs together and they all looked exactly the same the ball just flies off the bat for all of them so i could definitely see it let's move into some possible free agent signings um, and predictions we kind of talked at length a little bit on yamamoto so we'll skip over that but cody bellinger we briefly mentioned he could go to new york your thoughts are he might go to toronto now after they missed out on otani do you still feel that and why, why are you thinking toronto what's your inkling here well, you know, I am following the uh, the jet crisis that we had just a couple of days ago and the conspiracy that was where is Otani. Supposedly, there was a picture of Cody Bellinger's girlfriend taking a photo of, uh, of like the skyline in Toronto. Now, I'm not a reputable source. This was something I saw on Twitter. Who knows? Don't get the jets fired up. Um, I, I like but your I, pun there. Right. <laughs> but I... But I, I buy into the idea that why not bring in Cody Bellinger to Toronto? You lose out on Otani, right? You were willing to spend X amount of dollars on Otani. And same thing is being said with the Giants. Look what they did today. They bring in the outfielder from, uh, from Asia, which is not on our, our notes because I just completely forgot. But they found a young way. Young Holy. Yep, Young Holy is a giant. I want to say an eight-year deal. Um, so they, they were like, okay, Otani's gone. We're moving on to our next priority. Giants got their guy. Toronto cannot wait around because, as we talked about, if the Yankees miss out on Yamamoto, they are going to be picking up the phone and making the best offer to Bellinger, to Snell, to whoever they can at that point because it's desperation. Toronto needs to get ahead of this and bring in a top-end free agent. If it isn't Bellinger, maybe it's Snell. If it's not Snell, maybe they go out and bring in you know, Hader, as crazy as that sounds, with Romero already at the back end of that bullpen. But they need to make a splash after missing Otani. And I just think the best fit for them is probably be Bellinger because they do have a nice rotation. They have Ricky Tiedelman pushing his way forward. They need to figure out what to do with Manoa. But I think the best fit is Bellinger re-solidifying that outfield as George Springer gets yet another year older. I honestly think that this free agent signing period is going to be literally the domino effect. I keep saying that, but it's going to be the next best signing. So... I think the next one we see is Yamamoto. Once he signs, it's like, okay, Blake Snell yep. wants to see what he gets. And he's like, okay, I want something comparable or even better than what he got. And he could get that because 
whoever misses out on Yamamoto is going to come right to Blake Snell and be like, okay, we need you. We're willing to pay you more. And same with Bellinger. Like, you just saw what Young Ho Lee signed for, so Bellinger's going to want more than that. Um, Josh Hader is the one that is interesting. I don't think he needs to wait around because he's a closer, but I still think the Rangers are probably the favorites for him. But with the Rangers signing Kirby Yates, maybe muddies the waters a little bit. I don't think they signed Kirby Yates to be the closer. I think he's more of a middle relief. Roster Resource has him uh, slotted for the setup seventh inning role. So we'll see what well, happens. And, um... We'll keep you updated as we go. Kind of just jumping in real quick. Padres, Rangers. I want to say there's a few other teams in Major League Baseball that were contracted with Bally Sports Net, uh, which went bankrupt. So these teams that were relying on television revenue are not getting that television revenue. And I don't exactly know how the numbers play out and how revenue sharing plays out. It's all very murky to me, but I know that they have lost a stream of revenue. So the Rangers may not be making big moves because they don't have the same money they expected coming in. And then the same thing can be said with San Diego. The reason they had to take out that loan was because they weren't getting the revenue they expected from their TV contract. Soto being traded possibly was because a different company that they had entrusted their rights to went bankrupt. So there's a lot of pieces here financially that the league is dealing with. The Rangers are, are falling uh, consequence to that. The Padres have, I want to say Minnesota might have been Bally as well. I'm not for sure uh i think milwaukee was but these teams no milwaukee's no. fox uh are they still fs1 fs1 yeah or okay i think it's something but yeah well and that's it's disappointing because i think hater would already be off the board if the rangers weren't dealing with that it just makes sense all the way around um but i think that's a piece too as to why this offseason has been a little bit slower because you have less teams competing and to your point, Snell's going to get an extra $20 million a year after Yamamoto goes because of desperation. Yeah, we'll see. All right, enough of free agent predictions. We will keep you, the listeners, updated as more signings occur. Let's do a little fun activity now. We've talked about, um, I don't know, have we talked about our, yeah, we've talked about prospects that we like and don't like on each team. Let's go over our top 10 prospects that we think will be in the minors still or be prospect eligible come the middle of the year next year. So that's going to exclude players like Jackson Holiday, Junior Caminero, Jackson Churio, Wyatt Langford for this exercise, all players that we think are going to be up and exhaust their rookie eligibility or prospect eligibility, I should say, for any prospect lists probably by the middle of June, end of July. So um, we've got a pretty similar list here, Matt. I'll let you kick off yours, and we'll go into mine. And a little interesting thing, a little foreshadowing is half of my top 10 are pitchers, and I'll get a little bit into why they are ranked so high. Um, it's pretty much because it's top-heavy, but I'll let you go ahead and start off with your top 10. Yeah, and I didn't even think about saying this today to you today when we were talking about this exercise, and now that we're doing it, I feel bad. Um, I think our lists are going to be different for one main reason. This is not my presumed top, top 10. Um, this is what I expect the industry to have as top 10. Okay. So, that's, well, that's a good caveat. To yeah. It. So yours, I think you did yours as your top 10, right? Yeah. As yeah. I took, I took my, well, I've got my top 50 solidified right now. It's out on Twitter. If you want to go and find it, um, I'm working through my 50 through top 100. I'm hoping to get through my top 200 by the end of the off season. So, I pretty much just cut out all the 
the players from the top 20 that I think are going to exhaust, and I just moved them up the boards. Yeah. So and that's it, how my top 10 is listed out. And that makes a lot more sense now because of who you have, I actually agree with. Um, but I'll list mine. Again, mine come with the mindset that like this is where I think the industry will fall. Um, I have Dylan Cruz one, which I agree with. At number two, I have James Wood. You know, we both have the caveat here that he's here as long as he can lower the strikeout rate. If that, that can come. And move up to AAA. Yeah, if, if he can really take off and hell lower it to 20%. I'm, I'm really talking about a guy that I might even have number one, if he can hit 20% strikeout rate. Um, but that has to happen. Number three, I have Ethan Salas. I think the hype is only beginning. I think we're going to see probably a similar season. If they start him at double a, if they move him back to high a, I'll be really excited for the production that we can see. I think double a is a really aggressive assignment coming out of spring training. And my hope is that they just had moved him up to get at bats and, you know, training, education. Uh, number four, Kobe Mayo. This is one we kind of talked about today. We're, we're both unsure if he is still in the minor leagues. I think he will be just because of the uh, position jam and the talent jam in Baltimore. Um, trades need to happen. We've been waiting for it. It hasn't happened yet. Hopefully sooner than later. That way, you know, Kobe Mayo won't be eligible for this list because I think he is ready for a shot. Number five, Walker Jenkins. Um, I, I I would have him higher. You have him higher. It's just, just I, I don't think the industry will be ready to make a 19-year-old, 20-year-old the number two prospect in baseball. But I think he is, and I think he will be. Um, number six, Tamar Johnson. We need to see what we've been seeing from the second half of the season from him. Um, I mean, he's tooled up. This is a kid that has incredible power and was given a 70-grade hit out of the draft. Like, if we can see more contact, you're talking about arguably one of the best second base prospects in maybe 10 years. Roman Anthony coming in at number seven, Andrew Painter at number eight. Uh, I think we still have an industry standard that people love him. Uh, number nine, um, help me with this one. Adele Amador. Adele Amador. Okay. Adele Amador. Adele Amador. Um, best contact skills, in my opinion, in the minor leagues. I think that's going to continue to play up the season. I think people are going to want to put him as a shortstop in the top 10. Uh, Marcelo Meyer is obviously taking a casualty cut to him. So Amador has passed him on the, on the depth chart. Uh, Colson Montgomery, I'm expecting to be out of camp in Chicago. So Amador's best shortstop left. And then number 10, Samuel Basalo. Uh, the hype is just beginning. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the names you have in there. Mine are uh, a little different, but those are all guys that are within my top 20 or top 30 as it is now. So definitely like Ethan Salas. So I agree with what the industry is going with. My top 10 is Dylan Cruz. No surprise there. My number two is Walker Jenkins. And I don't think the hype's there yet. I think it's coming. I think we're just a little early. People forget he was drafted fifth overall um, in this year's draft. But I think it goes unnoticed that one, he was high school and overshadowed with Paul Skeens. Um, Dylan Cruz, Wyatt Langford, that was where all the, the polish was. Then it was, okay, there's Max Clark and Walker Jenkins. And Max Clark got all the popularity because he was taking over Wyatt Langford. So Walker Jenkins is kind of like the dark ho horse left behind. And the big thing with this top five from this class was a lot of the scouts were saying any other draft class, any of these guys would easily be the first overall. They all have that pedigree. They all have that ceiling. And you look at what they did, everybody was look, like glamoring over what Wyatt Langford did. Nobody's talking about what Walker Jenkins did. At rookie in low A, 
362 combined. He only got better. In rookie ball, he betted 333. Then he went to high A or low A, betted 392. Showed some power, three home runs, 26 games. Had some stolen bases, six overall. Walk to strikeout rate. You know I'm a big proponent on that. Nine walks, 14 strikeouts. I just loved what I saw from this kid. Um, I I was sleeping him in our, on our home league. I was so worried you were going to pick him up. And I saw you starting to make some last-second moves. I was like, screw it. I just got to go get my guy before he's gone. So I'm glad you didn't get him. He's my number two. Number three, I have James Wood. If he didn't have that strikeout rate, he probably would be number two over Walker Jenkins, but um, that could easily change. Now, here's where things get interesting for me because my next five are going to, or next four, I should say, not five. Four of my 10 are pitchers. Jackson Job, Andrew Painter, Cade Horton, Robbie Snelling round out my four through seven. And the big thing for me here is these are the pitchers that I believe are the bona fide studs. They have the control. They have the stuff. They've got front of the line ace potential. All the other guys, as at least for my rankings, there's a fall off. So in my opinion, after Robbie Snelling, there's a little bit of drop off. You got Hurston Waldrip and Jacob Mizorowski. Mizorowski has control issues and durability concerns. Waldrip also has um, control issues, but he's got nasty stuff. Um, and then after that, it drops off to Drew Thorpe, Chase Hampton, um, guys like that. Drew Thorpe, he's got a low um, fastball, but he's got great control and great secondaries. Chase Hampton, we just haven't seen him put it all together. He kind of fell off a little bit at the end. So after these four guys, there's question marks, and you don't feel 100% confident with them. And that, for those reasons, that's why these guys jump into my top 10. And for all we know, Cade Horton and Jackson Job might push the op- might push to the opening rotation by the middle of the year. Same with Robbie Snelling, depending on what the Padres decide they want to do. But then rounding up my top ten, I got Sam Basalo at eight, Xavier Isaac at nine, and Roman Anthony at ten. I think the only difference is I have Xavier Isaac in here. I just love the power in the end of his season. And the fact that the Rays traded away Kyle Manzardo just shows the confidence that they have in Xavier Isaac in the future. Yandy Diaz is their first baseman, but I think he's like 32, 33. I mean, first baseman can play into older ages, but I mean, eventually the Rays are going to turn the page to the young guns. So I believe in Xavier Isaac. So that's my top 10. And any thoughts, Matt? I'm curious about what your thoughts are on me having that many pitchers in the top 10 because historically pitchers don't get ranked as high because of the variance that comes with pitching and the injury risk. So am I too bullish by putting these four pitchers in my top 10? Well, you know, we had this conversation today uh, when we were discussing the exercise and I think what we had spoke on, it was absolutely correct, which was I can't remember the last time we saw four names like this. And, you know, I, I know for the exercise we're doing midseason 2024, I'm going to throw Skins in here, even though we expect him to be at the major league level, um, because he is, in my opinion, part of this class, this prospect class. Tiedemann would be in here too, but I have him. Yeah, and I and we talked, right? Tiedemann, Kyle, uh, Kyle Harrison, um, the, wow, I can't even think of his name, the kid in Miami. Um Noble Meyer? Um, nope. Perez. Thinking of Noble Meyer. Thinking of Perez. 
Yuri Perez. Yuri Perez. Um, you know, that was a nice class, but there were question marks. Yuri was the age, the durability because of the age and the lack of production um, and with innings. You had the control concerns with Kyle Harrison. You had the injury concerns with Ricky Tittleman. Like we had really nice upside, but there was something designated with, on almost every single one of these guys. Like most of the pitching top core prospects that come up through the game, there's always some some, in, some question marks. Now, Skeens, Painter, Horton, Snelling, all frontline guys. Unless something happens, maybe an injury, a Tommy John like we saw with Painter, um, these guys should presumably showcase as a, at least a two in a rotation at the major league level. And for fantasy perspective, that's a fantastic asset to have because you know you've got a guy that you can rely on for ratios as well as probably wins because most of these guys are going to be on good teams. The Tigers are on the rise. Jackson Job should be able to win games. Philly has committed to a winning window. Once Painter comes back, we should see him winning games. Horton, Cubs have committed to winning. Okay. And then you have Robbie Snelling. We talked about the assets that they gained in the Yankees trade on top of already having Fernando Tatis and Manny Machado locked up. So good ballpark, should be winning. Tough division there, but you can say that for a few of these guys. I think Job's division's probably the easiest. Um, but I can't remember a time we've had this many really high-end prospects that have few questions with them, right? We talk about Job's command, something you fell in love with, and you know that's just being praised. The only thing with Job is he might be starting in the major leagues by the time midseason rolls around. But these four names are absolutely deserving to be in a top 10. And I think most people in the industry poo-poo having even, you know, one or two in the top 10. But I would take all four of those guys over Termar Johnson. I would take all four of them over Amador. I'd take all four of them over Kobe Mayo and Ethan Salas. Um, I, I do not think the industry will, but I love your list. And Xavier Isaac is a guy we both really, really like. Um, there were some concerns around the industry. You know, you talked to me about the first base rankings that uh, Eric Crossing and Clegg put out. Uh, they brought some interesting concerns to my attention. Um, but I, I love the power, love the organization. I mean, this is an organization that has continued to create great prospects and to see them through and eliminate some of their holes. So I expect Isaac to have a really big year. I expect that zone contact to go up. Yeah, I completely agree. And the, the sky's the limit for him, in my opinion. But that rounds out our little exercise on where we think our top 10 will be come the middle of the season. I think we should roll it back a little bit and in future podcasts, Matt, dive into what our actual top rankings are, maybe go position by position. Um, once I finished out my rankings, I know yours are pretty much complete at this point. So once I get caught up to you, we can go through those lists as the off season progresses, but well, and you will... know, just as a, a highlight here, uh, and this is no disrespect to anyone that's doing this in the industry, but I am not going to give you names that do not matter. Um, I, I feel like when people do their top prospects at each position, you know, you, you feel obligated to list out 10 and I'm going to be honest at first base, I might have three, four that I want to talk about, you know, just thinking off the top of my head. And at outfield, I, I think have. I have 79 listed. I'm not going to list out all 79 guys. I'll list out until we get to the tier where it's like, hey, anything after this is just shooting fish in the sea. <laughs> I have um, three. So I've my, I got my top 50 ranked out, but I've got Xavier Isaac at 18, Kyle Manzardo at 25, 
Abimelech Ortiz at 36. And then I got Blaze Jordan. He was close to my top 50. He's probably going to be somewhere in my top 60, top 70. Um, but after that, I'm not even sure that guys like Ryan Clifford, Bryce Eldridge, Tyler Locklear, they're going to be lower and maybe not even crack my top 100. So um, I definitely agree with you on that one. But, yeah, and and this is the thing. When I was doing this, it was really hard because I wanted to put Marcelo Mayer in the top 10 because I think the shoulder injury he had this past year really held him back. I think we're going to see him come out and um, play really well. Um, I, I've never been a Meyer guy. I just not, but I think we've as an industry really, really, really kind of, uh, pushed him aside. Brooks Lee too. Hate him. Traded him today. Um, but, <laughs> but it, there are things with his profile that are conducive to rising boards. And what I hate about him isn't his ability. It's that Minnesota has made some financial decisions and it's going to affect where he plays. And that sucks. I feel like that's what Minnesota has been doing. Did you mean you mean Boston? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about Brooksley now. Oh, Brooksley. Um, Got it. You know, signing Correa, why? You had Brooksley, a guy that probably could give you equal production, if not better than what Correa has. So there were a couple names I really thought long and hard about and then some, you know, shots in the dark. Uh, we really, really, really enjoy Lazaro Montez. Uh, too much of an aggressive push, I think, for either of us to put him in there. Uh, Carlos Jorge is my guy. Brock Wilkin could be there. There are a lot of names that could push this top 10, obviously, but it's it's going to thin out after you have these mega stars leave. Um, and hopefully Roman Anthony and Xavier Isaac and Samuel Basalo can can pick up the pick up the torch. You know, these young kids, these 19, 20-year-olds can give us another wave very soon. The one thing I will note that is not in my top 10 is uh, Colt Keith and Matt Shaw will probably be in this list, but... I expect them to be up and exhaust their prospect eligibility by the middle of the season. That might be a hot take um, compared to what other people are thinking. I think Cole Keith is almost a lock. I think Matt Shaw is the dark horse. I think is going to be brought up and um, play or maybe it's not for the Cubs. Maybe they trade him. I'm not sure, but with the trajectory that Matt Shaw did, it was pretty comparable to what Wyatt Langford did, but just a little bit lesser. Yeah, Shaw's probably one we missed. Honestly, I think he's. I think he. I was. Yeah. Are you talking about in our home league? No, no, no. I'm saying in our lists. I, I don't know that Shaw is. I think Shaw's still in the minors this this coming uh, mid season. And I. Oh, you think he is? Yeah. I would have had him because yeah. he's my number nine. So he would have. I have him ahead of Wood, and I have him behind Walker Jenkins. So he would have slotted in as my number three. I think what's even more interesting about this list um, is that we're going to have the draft and you could foreseeably see Samuel Basalo, Xavier Isaac, Kruntz, as well as the kid from Florida. Help me with his name. Um, the Jack Co- King, um, Keglion. Keglion. You could see four first basemen in the top 10. That would be crazy. That'd That's be because Basalo, we I think we're all in agreement he's going to be a first base. He's going to be first base. Yeah. Um, I have Kru- him as a catcher in rankings, but yeah, Kroon's out of the draft, probably top five for me. I mean, it's I'm high, 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 high on him. And then Caglione, because of the dual ability, you know, is it is he an outfielder? Is he a first baseman? That'll be the designation question. But if he comes into the league as a dual player with his power profile and his 
velocity on the mound as a lefty, he'll be a top 10. So I don't know that we've ever seen four first basemen in the top 10, and they are all deserving of being top 10 players after the draft. Hey, I'm all about it. I'm all about it because first base and redraft leagues is very top heavy. It's, it's bad. Once you get past, yeah. yeah, once you get past, like, I mean, arguably Casas and Torkelson in dynasty leagues are nice to have, but I feel like in redraft leagues, they're not quite there. They're kind of middle of the pack. But it's like after you get past Pete Alonzo, Matt Olson, Freddie Freeman, Bryce Harper, it like falls off. You know, like if you don't have one of those top five guys, like you're just the same as everybody else. Like, cool, I'll just go and grab Josh Naylor as my first baseman. I'll just be happy with it, you know, things like that. So well, and the it'll same... be a breath of fresh air to have some good high-end prospects come to the majors very shortly. We're seeing the same problem in outfield, right? Outfield this year is, it's bad. You know, you have to target your outfielders early on so early and it's because of the churios and the jason dominguez's and the colton Cowsers and the wyatt lankfords and the dylan cruises and the names go yeah, on coming, and though. on and on right like they're coming and eventually we're going to be two three years from now we're going to be right back at outfield being a surplus and right now we're just not first base same thing like it it, it has its holes second base arguably deep after the top couple guys um uh, shortstop deepest it's maybe ever been. I mean, it, it shortstop is who cares at some point. You just yeah, draft so Carlos Gray and you know hope he rebounds. But this list is is really encouraging too because we're seeing the first base, we're seeing the pitchers, and then we're seeing the second wave, the Roman Anthony's, right? The guys that continue to help that outfield. You know, and Walker Jenkins, who maybe not in a points or excuse me, maybe not in the categories where Roto maybe isn't as valuable as he will be in points, but still absolutely worthy of being a top ten. A lot of guys we like. Yeah. It is the future is bright for prospects. I like it. I like it a lot. That wraps up our show for tonight. Um, we will catch you guys next time and we'll have some more exciting free agent news and get more into our prospect rankings for you. We Until might then, also we'll... have our Twitter up. We have to figure out the password. I've... <laughs> I don't know our username. Yeah. I so... found it. It's oh, you in did. your bio. It's in your bio. You tagged it. So I just started following. Oh, there phone. we go. You know, thinking ahead. That's how that's Thinking what we're ahead. doing. <laughs> modern day solutions for modern day problems. That's right. right? That's right. That's All our right. next podcast. Don't listen to it. <laughs> steer you steer you in the wrong direction, I promise. Yeah, we'll give you baby advice for that one. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you guys later.